we thank you that our lives, the entirety of our lives, the entirety of, of our beings are in your hands. And we thank you that you so compassionately meet all of our needs. We thank you that when Paul, the apostle, was down, uh, he, he looked to you and yet at that time said the God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. We thank you that you do so often use people to help us, to support us, to encourage us. Even when you could do it directly with us yourself, Lord, you choose to use servants. Use us, Lord, with one another tonight. Bless this time together uh, around your word. Make us glad for the way that you bless us the way that you bless us directly, but also the way that you do bless us through one another, through the church family. So please be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love to uh, set a reading for somebody else leaving the service with a few challenging names there. I'm thinking of doing a series in the genealogies. I'll happily come back and do those for you anytime if you would like to. Uh, but uh, praise the Lord, what a great chapter uh, this is. We're looking at Romans 16, as you can see on the screen, I've entitled it Living with Church Tensions. Living with Church Tensions. But I'm not meaning it in the most obvious way that might sound like. Lots of tension in church. Um, we'll come to that in a minute. The reality is, though, thinking of tensions, whenever you put two people in a room together, there is potential for tension. Because there's potential for disagreement, there's potential for different uh, opinions, for clashes of personality, for them to grate on one another in different ways. Now, when you bring a church family together, like we have here today, this morning, this evening, there is so much potential, in many ways, but potential for tension uh, is one of those ways. But as I say, it's not that kind of tension we're really going to be thinking about this evening, it's actually the tension of trying to hold together two things which are both important but appear, at least initially, to be almost contradictory to one another. But actually to, to do things well, we need to hold them in tension. For instance, some of you may have children or grandchildren and uh, when children are getting into sport, you can imagine in a family situation where one of the parents is really the competitive type. Winning is everything. Play hard, fight hard, win. The other parent is having fun is what matters. Just taking part, that is what matters. What have you got there? Great opportunity for tension. Two people see it very differently. Now, what are, what are they going to do? Have they got to... Uh, find that one or the other of them is right? Well, probably the answer is to hold those two points of view in tension and to recognize that actually winning is important, uh, but also having fun and taking part is important. But once you put uh, it as though one thing and one thing only matters, you get into a lot of difficulty. It doesn't allow for the other perspective to come into play uh, at all and we need to be careful of that and there are tensions that really hit us I hope they hit you this evening as we read this chapter if they didn't I hope they will as we look at God's word together uh, in in this time because for instance this 
chapter, sorry, this epistle is seen by most as one of the loftiest New Testament um, epistles that, that there is. It, it details the way of salvation. It's the nearest thing we have to a, a systematic theology in that it quite systematically treats the whole way of salvation, of sin, of justification, uh, the propitiation, the blood of Christ, sanctification, glorification, so on, all of those are, are dealt with. And, and so it's, it's lofty stuff that we're dealing with through the epistle. We get to chapter 16, we have a list of names. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet this one, greet that. He is sending his greetings to various people uh, in the church. If you listen to radio quizzes, where the, the um, person hosting the show at the end of it says, is there anyone you'd like to say hello to? And there are some people who go, uh, like they've never been expecting to have that question put to them. Like, haven't they listened to a radio quiz before that you know you're going to be asked, is there anyone you want to say hello to? But there are others who've got their whole Christmas card list before them and want to say hello to everybody and their dog. And uh, you can hear the presenter getting uncomfortable when it goes into two minutes. You know, it's just, just a bit much. Well, here we are, 22 times the Apostle Paul says, greet, 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 greet. 35 names, David enjoyed those. 35 names were here in this chapter, 35 individuals. And they're mainly people who we know nothing about. They are, in a sense, nobodies, apart from they matter to God. And they're in the Word of God. And such has been the, the crunch, the, the sense of a, a big gear change here as you come into chapter 16 that many commentators and writers have said, Paul didn't write this, it doesn't fit with the rest of the letter. It's been, it's been inserted. Well, you only think like that because you have already decided that this kind of talk about mundane people issues is out of step with heavy theology and that's our problem so that leads us to our first point this evening that we need to live with the tension that the church loves both high god-focused truth and mundane people matters this letter is full of high truths sin law justification propitiation the conquering of sin sanctification, glorification, the place of suffering, the place of Israel, election, coping with differences of opinion within the life of the church. And this chapter doesn't lose sight of this love for, for high, God-focused truth. We, we reach the crescendo. It kind of came out of the mundane people matters right at the end, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ amen and you can hardly resist but join in with a, an amen because it's so high it's so lofty it's so so glorious but the rest of chapter 16 or most of it just greetings so mundane by comparison 
I think this is showing us we must hold the tension here and, and live in the tension and actually love the tension. We shouldn't be embarrassed by the tension. Paul doesn't say, I'm sorry about this, but I, I do want to say hello to a few people before, before I finish. He's not embarrassed by it. He's not apologetic about it. He, he speaks with as much clarity and authority as he has done in, in, in previous chapters. So we must hold this tension. First of all, we must love great truths. We must love high truths, lofty truths. Truths even that are, 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 are bigger and higher and greater than obviously practical truths. And they're, they're important as well. But, you know, you could talk about truths that help us, say, to, to deal with anger or to deal with marriage and things like that. But no, higher, holier things concerning the, the Lord Jesus, his deity, his, his inner eternality, his atoning work, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, within us, God's eternal, everlasting purposes. We must love these truths. We should love a letter to the Romans in an entirety. But at the same time, in tension with that, we must love mundane people matters. Let's read a few verses. Let's not be embarrassed by these verses. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, uh, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. These names, the people that these names represent, are honoured in our inspired holy scriptures, alongside the great truths of justification, sanctification, and propitiation, and glorification. These matter. With God, everyone matters. Down to as Matthew ten twenty nine. To 31 points out right right down to the very hairs on our head but what happens if we don't hold these things in tension well if you only love the high god-focused truths if all your emphasis is on those the danger is that you'll become the kind of doctrinal elitist who cares little for anybody as long as your theological i's are dotted and your theological t's are crossed that's what will matter to you. If your focus is only on, shall we say, more mundane people matters, you could become apparently very loving towards people but lose sight of great gospel truths. And in the end, actually, that isn't very loving because those great gospel truths are the only hope that people have. So it is actually very loving towards people care about truth. So we've got to hold these things in tension. The church loves and loves the fact that it loves both high, God-focused truth and mundane people matters. And we shouldn't be apologetic about either. Secondly, we need to live with a tension that church is both global and local. Global and local. See, here's the tension you see, uh, another tension we see running through this chapter. One is clearly global. The, the letter is global. It's preached global truth to us. It hasn't preached a truth for one place. It's preached global truth for all times and all places. 
Not a different gospel for Europe. Rome is obviously in, in Europe. Not a different gospel uh, for uh, Asia. Not a different gospel for Africa. This is global truth. It's also clearly stated to be truth which is for the whole world in this chapter. At that great ending of the whole epistle from verse 25 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. That's a key issue, this whole letter. Paul is on his way to Rome. He's writing this letter to encourage the support of the church at Rome to get behind him in his trip to, to Spain. The fact that this is a global letter really, really matters. But then it is quite patently, obviously local as well. The letter is to one church in one place, the city of Rome. These greetings are incredibly uh, localized. Verse 1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever uh, she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, what it seems is that Phoebe was the one who acted as the postman for this letter. She carried um, the, the letter from Paul to Rome. If we can have the map up, uh, please. Use, uh, I really need a pointer, but in the red circle that's kind of near, near the middle, you see Sencria, it's a port town on the edge of, on the edge of Corinth. She was from there. Paul uh, probably wrote this from Corinth. And it's going up to the top left corner where Rome is there, uh, this is a, a long journey, some five or six hundred miles uh, to, to travel would take quite, quite a while. But she's made that, that journey. But she's a place from one locality moving to another locality. If we could move on from the map now and back to the points, uh, please. And you, and you see it as we go on. Greet Prissa, verse 3, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks uh, as well. And so it goes on. 26 people are named, verses 3 through to 15, who are in Rome. And although Paul has, has traveled widely in his ministry and planting churches, preaching the gospel from one city to another, he's remembered these people. He's met them in various places. He's, he's never been to Rome yet. But he must have met them on their travels and, and his travels. And he, he knows them and, and they matter to him. He cares uh, about them. And once he sent greetings to them, he then sends greetings to the church in Rome from eight people who are local to him. Uh, that's what we have in verses 21 to 23. So Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sospater. My, my kinsman, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. You say, well, I thought Paul wrote it. Yes, he did. But he tended to write under a kind of dictation system. So Tertius is the man with a pen. 
and he manages to slip in his own greeting there. But So eight people local to where Paul was when he was writing this letter send their greetings. Now these are not irrelevant details. It's incredible that the God who manages to contain frequently so much of history in relatively so few pages and words in scripture spends a whole chapter dealing with these people in their places. What's the message? Why, why is it here? What would we lose if Romans 16 was cut out of our Bibles? We would lose or would be in danger of losing the reality that, that the church is both global and local. The global clearly matters. We know where to go into all the world to preach the gospel. Local matters because church is worked out in a locality, specific location with specific people. That's really important. And why is this a tension? Well, there's a tension because local church has so many needs that it could take all of our time, all of our money, all of our prayers, all of our energy, thought, love and care to the point where we could just say, forget about the global issues. Local issues are enough for us. But then equally, global needs are sufficient that those global needs could take all of our time, all of our money, all of our prayers, all of our energy, thought, love, and care. Should we go one way or the other? Global, local? No. We've got to pull these together. We've got to live with the tension. But actually, the global matters, the local matters. These are both really important. We need to care for both without apology, not pitting one against the other, not getting obsessed with one or the other, sometimes recognizing that local situation allows for us to give more support globally than at other times where perhaps we may have to step back but carefully and prayerfully holding the needs the cares the priorities intention of both the global and the local situations and then thirdly the church lives with the tension that the church has both lips and teeth slightly more cryptic this one but i wonder if you spotted the lips and the teeth. Well, let's have a look at the lips first of all. The culmination of the greetings that Paul sends to these various individuals in the church of, uh, in, in Rome is uh, a broad one to, to the, the, the church where they are to greet one another, verse 16, with a holy kiss. That's what you need lips for. We need lips for a holy kiss. Stuart Elliot has word, wise words on this verse. He says, The whole atmosphere which permeates this section is one of warmth and sincere affection. I think it's really important that he points out there it permeates this whole section. Not, not just the greeting. It doesn't suddenly get warm with the holy kiss. The preceding verse is very, very warm, very loving. The whole atmosphere which permeates this section is one of warmth and sincere affection. It was the spirit of the early church and was to be expressed in the way they greeted each other. The holy kiss may not appeal to 21st century readers, certainly not in some cultures. And it can be argued that, it, that, that such a form of greeting was determined by the culture of the time and place. That might mean that it's therefore fitting with certain cultures today and not with others. And should not therefore be imposed on the churches of Christ in other cultures. Some of you will be, whew, phew, we've not got to get into this holy kiss business with one another because you're utterly British and uh, don't fancy that idea, but he's not going to let you off the hook. He then says, 
But if our greeting of fellow believers is less than hearty and affectionate, we are certainly falling short of what Scripture requires of us here. So even if it isn't quite appropriate for us, and you'll have to decide that for yourself, uh, to greet one another with a holy kiss, it does nonetheless point us to a model, a principle of a warm and affectionate way of greeting. And alongside that, not just our greeting, but our whole way with one another. That, that, that warmth and affection would permeate the whole of church life. So there's the lips, and you might not need to use exactly the lips, but there's the lips. Church has lips, but it also needs to have teeth. Where are the teeth? Well, verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. See, when it comes to those who cause divisions, the church needs teeth, not lips. These people are not to be greeted with a holy kiss. They're to be avoided. That's what I'm calling teeth, because that is, that is hard. They're to be avoided because they are bent on destruction. They're, they're described with the details here that they cause divisions, create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but they're in appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. I think it's a little bit unfortunate that the ESV, in its translation here, along with many commentators, focus on the one angle of doctrine. So they use the word um, doctrine in verse 17, those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Now, let me explain what I'm bothered about here. It's a good translation, that word doctrine. The problem is the word over the last hundred years has been increasingly used in a fairly narrow way. So we talk about doctrinal issues. And I can guarantee if I got you to write a list of doctrinal issues, you'd think of things like the deity of Christ, his resurrection, election, you would not include in it loving one another. Don't see that as a doctrinal issue. But the reality is the word in the original language of the New Testament was not used like that in that segregating way. It just means teaching doctrine, the teaching uh, that you have been taught, or as the, the New American Standard or the New International Version put it, the teaching which you learn is a good literal translation, the teaching which you learned. So when you broaden it with those kind of words, you might re well remember that some of the teaching you, in, you learned includes John 13, 34 and 35, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's included then in the teaching. So I think it's the breadth of it we need to, to be in, in, have in our minds. Those who cause divisions and create obstacles are not simply against those things we think of as doctrinal issues, but against the whole teaching. So somebody might be theologically top-notch, but might be the most unloving, divisive person you know. And these verses are speaking about them. Nothing wrong with them doctrinally. That's the problem with that word. We use it in such a limited way. See, this is challenging to have both lips and teeth. But at the same time, warmly and affectionately 
greet one another, live with one another, serve one another, and yet at the same time be willing to say, enough. The way you're behaving, the divisive way you are hurting people in this church is enough. I need to have nothing more to do with you until you have repented. That's, that's, that's tough love, isn't it? Really tough love. That takes teeth. To be filled with love and yet be willing to discipline by avoidance those intent on division. But these two aspects that we need to hold in tension uh, are in no way in contradiction with one another. We know that because they, they come from the same apostle writing this letter. They come by the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit through this, uh, this apostle. And, and it's especially underlined by the fact that verse 17, in case you weren't clever enough to spot this, follows verse 16. What I mean is, he in the same breath can say, greet one another with a holy kiss. But if there are people who cause divisions and create obstacles, avoid them. He pulls them together. He holds them very, very tightly uh, together. So if you love the church, people, one another as a whole, you will want to protect it from those intent on causing it harm. And that will occasionally mean saying enough is enough with certain individuals who are intent on causing division. Well, does this seem a strange way to end such a glorious uh, epistle. Well, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is certainly tying up some loose ends and pulling together things which, if not tied together in the way that he ties them in this chapter, could look to be at odds with one another. So can we, as a church, aim to live with the tensions, really live with these tensions, of loving both high God-focused truth and mundane people matters. Of, of living with attention that the church is, importantly, both global and local. And that it has both lips and teeth. We're going to uh, sing.